Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers this morning, chapter 1, Numbers chapter 1. Fourth book in the Bible, in case you're confused. We're looking at an overview of some things here today. A man was sitting by his garden and uh, just looking at the garden, and he had some decorative sticks, just some painted sticks on the edge of his garden. And he's watching as a caterpillar came and and climbed up one of the sticks and came to the very top of the stick and looked around trying to find something to eat or whatever and couldn't find anything. And so he climbed back down the stick and went over a few uh, inches further where there's another stick, and he did the same thing, climbed to the very top, uh, looked around, tried to find something, couldn't find anything, went back down, went to the next stick, and so forth. And as the man watched that caterpillar doing that, he recognized that that's very, pretty similar to his own life. He is uh, constantly looking for something that never satisfied, constantly looking for something that found no purpose for him in life. And then he realized, you know, these are just painted sticks, and that's how the world lives, just following, climbing painted sticks that never bring satisfaction or life. I think this is a pretty good picture of the people of Israel in the the book of Numbers. These people have lost their perspective. They've lost God's perspective. And that's what happens when we spend our lives climbing painted sticks, looking for purpose where purpose cannot be found. Uh, They are the people of God. They're chosen by Him. But uh, they are not uh, understanding the ways of God and living the ways of God. They're, They're among the most blessed people that ever lived. Could you imagine being a people that just watched God bring about these ten different plagues on the people of Egypt? And then opening up the Red Sea and then giving them the Ten Commandments and giving them manna and all these things that God had already done for them. What a blessed people, what a privileged people they were in so many ways. And yet they're constantly unhappy, constantly dissatisfied. They're discontent and discontent people often find themselves going towards tragedy. Discontentment often leads to tragic consequences and it does in their life as well. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. And it is one that is uh, easily broken into three sections uh, based upon geography. In verses uh, w- chapters 1 to 10, uh, they are at Mount Sinai for about a year, a little, little over a year. Uh, there God has prepared them for the future. He's given them the Ten Commandments and other things we'll mention in a moment. Then we move to chapters 11 to 17. That's a second section. And that's, now they journey from Mount Sinai uh, in, off to a place, a little hole in the wall called Kadesh Barnea. And there they're ready to move into the land of promise that God had given them. But something goes tragically wrong. And we find in chapters 18 to 36, they spend the next 38 years wandering around in a wilderness. And this, so the book of Numbers can be broken into that way. We're going to spend time this morning looking at the first two sections. And we'll look at the third section next week. What we're doing here, I'm getting ready to start a relatively long and detailed series that I'm so excited about. You know, in the book of Hebrews, uh, one of my favorite books in all the Bible. What a great book. But I'm trying to set that up by looking at some of the things going on in the, in the Hebrew history, the uh, Jewish people and their background, and, and why the people in the book of Hebrews, some of these Jewish people wanted to go back to the way it used to be. And in order to understand what they wanted to go back to, we need to see a little bit about what it was that attracted them or at least they thought attracted them. So we're looking at the book of Numbers this week and next, and the book book of Leviticus the week after that. Then we'll launch into the book of Hebrews. But as we do that, we'll look at these first two sections. And we're given here an awful portrait of a spiritually dissatisfied people and the price that they ended up paying. We'll start off in this first 
a section, chapters 1 to 10, with preparation, and it actually starts off quite well. They are getting prepared for the future. And in verse 1 it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their father's household, according to the number of the names, every male, and head by head, from twenty years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war. So that's a pretty encouraging note. We start off with, they've been at Mount Sinai for about a year, ever since Exodus chapter 19, when they received the, the Ten Commandments. They now have been given the laws of God. They've been given the priesthood. The priesthood has been set up under Aaron and the Levites. They've been given the sacrificial system, uh, which would serve as the, uh, uh, the prelude to what Jesus would do for us on the cross when he died as the perfect sacrifice. Uh, they were, they've been given the construction of the tabernacle in which they would worship God and all that, that goes with that. But uh, in the first chapter, we find that they're, they're told to do a census. And that census is, found, is, is uh, ultimately added up in verse 46 of chapter 1. And we find there's 603,550 men, aged 20 and up, who are ready for war. That's the first census. Uh, this is the Exodus generation. Only two of that whole group will ever go into the promised land. We come to the end of the book in chapter 26, verse 51, and there's a second census. And at that one, this is the conquest generation, the ones that would actually go into the promised land. And of that number, we have 601,730. So quickly subtract, and we find that the numbers are almost identical. Just a few less going into the land than first left Egypt. It's from these two senses that the book of Numbers gets its name, the two senses. But the Jews didn't call it the book of Numbers. They called it, the book, they called it in the wilderness, the book of the, in the wilderness. And that's a much better name, isn't it? Because it's not about two times when they counted the people. It's about what happened to them in between. And so it's a book about in the wilderness. I like that better. The first census is one concerning these military people, uh, the people ready, being prepared for war, to go into the promised land. It's going to be a, a big army. But they need more than a big army to, to conquer the land. They need a number of other things. And these verses, these chapters, point out four more things that they need. First of all, chapter 3, they need spiritual leadership. They're not going to win the battles simply by being a military force. They need spiritual leadership. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Now these are the records of the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. And, there, and these are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Nethamar. As we look at this group here, what, we, what we're catching a picture of very quickly is this is not your normal government, not, not your normal nation. This is a group that is under the government of God. It's called a theocracy. God was their leader, not people. Uh, the humans that he used for leadership, he was looking at people who are primarily part of the priesthood. Their preparation would be spiritual leaders who would lead them not just in military battles, but in spiritual ways, and needed a priesthood for that. Human their human leaders were not politicians. They were not warlords. They were not kings. They were priests. They were godly people who led them in the way of worship of God all the way through. And so they needed 
that type of leadership. Secondly, they needed to be a people of purity. In America, chapter, chapter 5, by the way, in America, uh, we're all about rights, aren't we? Uh, human rights, civil rights, animal rights, whatever kind of rights you want to come up with, we're all about rights. But the people of Israel were not to be about rights, they were to be about purity. And so we see that throughout all the Old Testament. But in chapter 5, we pick up a few pieces of that. We find uh, God was concerned about general sins. We just, just a, a taste here, chapter 5, verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, He said, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the kinds of sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins, which he's committed, and he shall make a restitution in full for his wrong, and add one-fifth of it to it. And so we just have this a general thing. When, when sin comes, that it was to be dealt with. They were to confess their sins. They were to make those sins right before anyone they had sinned against. Uh, this was the purity factor that would be part of their lives. And then there's other things, such in chapter uh, 5, verses 11 to 31. Uh, adul adultery was very concerning. Immorality was something often spoken of in the Old Testament that they were to stay away from. And here was a particular situation that is dealt with there. But I want to go to chapter 6 and show one more thing that they needed. They needed dedication. In chapter 6 we have the Nazarite vows. And we look at verse 2, for example. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord. And then he goes on to explain what that's about. I want to focus for a moment on that word dedication. Uh, the Nazarites would be taking these special vows for special purposes. Uh, Samson was a, a Nazarite. John the Baptist apparently was a, a Nazarite. Samuel was a Nazarite. These are people that were sp supposed to be specially dedicated to God. But all the people were to be dedicated to God. The Nazarites simply set the agenda. They were exhibit A. And dedication was the key to their success if they were going to have success. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about gardening. Uh, I don't know, some of you are real gardeners. And some of us are not. Uh, I've had a few gardens in my time, and I remember the first garden I ever did. Uh, I just loved having, having it tilled up, this beautiful soil, and all the rolls here, and I planted uh, my vegetables that were so pretty and neat. It was just several, it was quite a little ways outside of our house. But every morning I went over to take a look at my vegetables growing up, and there was virtually nothing there. But every morning I went and looked, and something else I discovered, though, as I visited every day, I discovered these things called weeds. Now, I really enjoyed planting. I enjoyed the, the produce. I enjoyed the, uh, plowing, but I did not enjoy the weeds. So I, at first I went out and plucked up some weeds. And then after a while, that was too cumbersome, so I hold up the weeds. And before long, I began to realize, I don't want to do this. This is not my life. I am not a dedicated gardener. Uh, I, I just think I'm just not going to do it. Well, as I visit your houses, I notice the ones that are dedicated gardeners and the ones that are not. The dedicated gardeners have gardens you could put on the cover of, of garden magazines or whatever, in a beautiful, weedless gardens. I think, what's wrong with you people that you would do such a thing? And then I, then I see most people's gardens. And they're filled with weeds and, and things like that. What, what does it take to, to have a garden that looks like the beautiful ones versus mine? Dedication to a gardening project. 
The people of Israel, if they were going to have spiritual life, if they were going to go God's way, needed dedication to the things of God. They weren't to play around. See, I was a play around gardener. You know, as long as it went well, as long as I didn't have to do too much, it's fine. But don't call on me to go out there and weed that thing every day. I wasn't dedicated to that. But a lot of people take their Christian life like that. But we'll, we'll dabble. We'll, have a, we'll get some produce. We'll get some fruit here and there. But don't call on me to be sold out to Jesus Christ and truly be dedicated to him. I'm not going to do that. And that's where Israel was. They wanted the blessings. They wanted the land that flowed with milk and honey. But they didn't want to dedicate themselves to Christ and to the Lord. So we have this example early on of purity that they weren't willing to follow. And then the third thing they're going to need is the presence of God. In verse chapter 6, verse 22, it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you on you and give you peace. What a beautiful benediction. What a beautiful blessing that is. This shows what God wanted to do for them. This shows God's desire for the people of Israel. It's his blessing upon them. And this is what God, he's calling them to be. In chapter 9, we find a little later on that he gives them his visible presence. The evidence of himself will be seen visibly by these people. In verse 15 of chapter 9, Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. And so it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance by fire of fire by night. The presence of God would be evident to the people of Israel because his, his glory cloud, his Shekinah glory, would come over the tabernacle by, by day, and at night it would be a fire. They knew he was with them. They could see evidence, physical evidence, of his presence. Now, as Brian mentioned earlier in the introduction, uh, that's all changed. Israel lost the physical evidence of the presence of God hundreds of years before Christ came. At the, at the uh, exile, the, the glory of the Lord departed in the book of Ezekiel and never returned, ever, never has. But in John chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us that when Jesus Christ came, he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. The presence of God was localized in Jesus Christ at that time. And when he was on the earth, they saw the presence of God in Jesus Christ. But Christ is not here any longer. Jesus Christ has gone back. He's ascended to heaven. But he promised and he did send his spirit back to us. And so all those that know Christ as their Savior have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And the presence of God is in us continuously, constantly, if you know him as Savior. He tabernacles in us. That's his presence. I get so weary, quite frankly, of hearing people say and hearing songs and this, that, or the other about calling down the presence of God or seeking the presence of God or having some music that made me feel the presence of God. None of that is biblical. All that is Old Testament stuff that's gone, folks. That is not what we need. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And when the Holy Spirit lives in you, he changes you. And the evidence of the, of the Holy Spirit in your life is his fruit. 
His constant changing of you to be, to be more in tune and line with Him. But the people had the presence of God here. And then they also had the guidance of God. Chapter 9, verse 17. Whenever the cloud was lifted over the tent, afterwards the sons of Israel would set out. And in a place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. They would have guidance from the Lord through the means of this glory cloud, this Shekinah glory. The Lord himself would guide them, and they would follow him, and they would go where he would tell them and lead them to go. In chapter 10, verse 11, we have their first journey. Now, in the second year, verse 11, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time, according to the commandment of the Lord, through Moses. So now they have his guidance. And their first journey, he leads them, and they go forth. And are they excited? Well, Moses is. Chapter 10, verse 35, here's what he says. Then it came about when the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it comes to the rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriads of thousands of Israel. Moses is ecstatic. The very presence of God is leading him forward wherever he wants him to go. And so when we come to the end of chapter 10, the first section, we have a people that are unbelievably blessed. There are people that have been given spiritual leadership. They've been given purity. They've been shown dedication. They have the presence of God. They have the guidance and leadership of God. They have been given what no one in the history of humanity has ever been given as far as the evidences of God in their lives. They are people prepared to do what God wants them to do. And then everything changes in chapter 11, verse 1. Everything changes in one minute, one verse of Scripture. All that's happened will now change. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us the Lord put this information in our Bibles so that we would not sin as Israel sinned. It's given to us for His instruction that we might not live as these people lived and suffered what they suffered. It's for our good. And so we begin to look at some of that today. And what we find here is starting with verse 1 is we find a bunch of complainers. We find them beginning to grumble about everything. And as we look at that together, I want to identify five types of complaining they did. In verse 1 is just a general complaining about hardship. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complained of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. When the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some at the outskirt of the camp. And the people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. Now the text does not tell us what they were complaining about here, uh, except that life just wasn't going their way. Things weren't happening the way they wanted it to happen, and they began to grumble and complain. Most of us by default are complainers, aren't we? We're, we're, we grumble when things don't happen the way we think they ought to happen. But when it really boils down to it, folks, the reason we grumble is because we don't have God's perspective on what God is doing in our lives. Well, we want comfort 
And we want blessing and we want ease and we want everything to roll our direction. And when it does, doesn't, we get grumpy. And yet, from God's perspective, God is not so interested about us always being comfortable. He's interested in forming us into the people that he wants us to be. He's working on that regard. And when we lose that perspective, God's perspective, then we become grumblers. Somebody asked a sculptor who was sculpturing on a piece of marble, what are you making? He said, a horse. And he said, how, well, how are you going to make a horse? He said, I'm going to knock away everything that doesn't look like a horse. <laughs> Sometimes God wants, to make us, God wants to make us into his people who walk with him in integrity and, and obedience and love. And sometimes he has to chisel away certain pieces of our prized lives to get us there. And we grumble when we lose those pieces. But when we get back into God's perspective, what God wants to accomplish, everything begins to change. But the people of Israel don't do well with that, and so they're grumbling. God brings into their world here a fire that burned among them, so apparently some perished. He has fired a warning shot across the bow here. Well, they paid attention. Here's a second complaint. It's about food. Verse 4, the rabble, boy, I like that word rabble. Isn't that a, isn't that a cool word? The rabble. And I, it just rolls off the tongue just real well. The rabble. I don't know. It's just a cool word. I just like it. I'm sorry. Okay. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We, we remember the fish. And we were used to eat free in Egypt and the cucumbers, who cares about them? And the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. We had nothing here to look at except this manna. I don't know if they whined exactly like that or not, but I could understand if they did. They were, they are, they're discontent with their food. Now remember, manna was a miracle, Right? Just recently, just a year or so ago, they had nothing to eat. They walked out their back door, and here is bread given to them by God. And every day they went out to get bread. All they had to do is walk out their back door. Son, go, go pick up lunch, okay, and literally pick up lunch. It takes me 20 minutes to get through Taco Bell anymore. You know, they just went out and got it. Well, at first that was cool, but things began to, they got used to it. And I understand that. If you had the same meal over and over and over uh, there'd be some grumblers. If we had the same meal on Wednesday night every week, there'd be some rabble grumbling in our church about that same meal. And I could understand that. But you know, because they become grumblers and rebellious people, they'd only been eating that manna for about a year or so. They're going to eat it for 40 years. So I wonder how they liked it 38 years later. Probably, probably not so well. Well, they're complaining about that, but you know, the rabblers are never content to just rabble. And so in chapter 11, verse 10, we find that they affect the rest of the people. Now Moses heard that the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. Could you imagine this? There's grown men crying because they didn't get some meat. I mean, they're sitting there whining. So, but he saw them crying at the, at the doorway of their tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased with them. Their discontent had spread. One of the sad things I've noticed throughout time as a pastor is that, uh, that people that are unhappy, who start to spread their unhappiness, start to complain, uh, can affect a lot of other people. 
You know, just a complaint here, a, a half-truth there, a little gossip there, uh, a little lie perhaps even, and that's that, that something that may not even be true begins to spread and do great harm to people. Mark Dever says, when you can't take them on directly, gossip. That's just a little bit here, a concern that you have there, and so forth and so on. Many years ago now, there was a young man came to our church. He's about 20 years old, and he really wanted to walk with Christ. And he'd come to our church. He fit right in with our people. We loved him. He was ministering among us. I think he, uh, he played a, an instrument on, up here with us and different things. Just doing great. We just appreciated this young man so much. And he loved our church so much, he invited his family to come. And his family became part of our church for a short time as well. But his dad was one of these rabble people. And I knew his history. I knew he'd come from church to church to church complaining about whatever church he went to. I was hoping he wouldn't do it with ours, but it wasn't long that he began to do that with ours. He began to say ugly things, half-truths, offended by everything. And I, remember that, I still remember very vividly the day I sat down with him and his son and his daughter, I believe, in my office as they were leaving the church, and I was trying to help them. And the father just complained about everything under the sun. There was no possible way to help him. And I turned to the boy. And I said to him directly, you remember it wasn't long ago you were singing the praises of this church and how much you loved it and how you were being blessed and how you were growing. What happened? And he said to me as clearly as day, well, I didn't see these things till my dad pointed them out. Thank you, dad. You just messed up your son, perhaps for life. The complaining, the belly aching that took place. Uh, I don't know what happened to that family or with the boy in particular, but it was heartbreaking how easy it is to get some little thing and to get you upset, and next thing you know, you're off to the races, complaining and hurting other people. That happened here. Now Moses is in basically despair. Verse 11, chapter 11, he says, Why have you been so hard on your servant? He's complaining, he's complaining now to God. And why have you not found favor in your sight? I have not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden on all these people on me. Lord, I don't want these people. I didn't, I didn't ask for them. <laughs> now you take them back. You know, leave me alone. Verse 20, it says, uh, here's what the Lord says you're going to do. You want to eat meat? He says, verse 20, that for a whole month, I'm going to send you quail until it comes out your nostrils. That's a pretty picture. Okay? It's going to come out your nose holes. Right? And then we'll back over to verse 33. And they got their meat. And while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. Oh, they got their meat all right, and they paid the price. At the end of verse 34, and they, and they were buried the people who had been greedy. The rabble-rousers found themselves in a grave. And then we find uh, another complaint in, in chapter 12, verse 1, and that's a complaint about leadership. You know, it's one thing to have general people complaining. It's another thing to have your family turn on you isn't it? In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron, that's sister and brother of Moses, spoke against Moses because the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. So they're, they're wanting to take over the leadership from Moses. Moses shouldn't lead us. We can lead as well. And so they step up and challenge Moses began to do him harm, or try to do him harm. The Lord 
It says in verse 5, The Lord came down on a, a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. The Lord is, himself is going to defend Moses, who refused to defend himself. And it's moving on this story because of time. We find that the Lord brings a plague on Miriam with leprosy. Apparently, Miriam was the key instigator here. Aaron was always a weak man. Every time we run into him, he's a weak person. Miriam apparently led the charge, and she paid the price. Aaron prayed for asked Moses to pray for her, and the Lord took the leprosy away. But here we have these people complaining about leadership. And then in chapter 13 and 14, we have complaints about expectations. In perhaps the best-known story in the book of Numbers, and maybe one of the best-known stories in the Bible, Israel is camped in chapter 13, verse 26, outside of Kadesh. This is just a hole-in-the-wall place, just within a, a striking distance of the promised land. This, is, this would be their, their, their base, in which they now would go into the land, just, just across the way, just a little bit. But in 13, chapter 1, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, as the Lord spoke to them, He said, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel, and you shall send a man from each of the father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So the 12, tribe, 12 spies go out, the scouts, to look over the land. We're familiar with this story. They come back with a mixed report, typical committee style, right? And they, they come back with a mixed report. And here's what they say in verse 27. Ten of, ten of, the, of the spies. We went into the land. We sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, the descendants of Anak are there. And, and they mentioned a whole bunch of others. And go down to verse 31. And then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against this people, for they're too strong for us. And so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we had gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw were, of, were men of great size. Therefore, there also we saw the, the Nephilim and the sons of Enoch are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were there in their sight. Yes, the land is everything God said it would be, but we can't take it because the people there are huge. They have big cities, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't do it. Well, Caleb didn't agree, as we know, verse 30, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb speaks up. He quieted the people before Moses and said, uh, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Caleb said, sure, these things are true, but we have God on our side, and we can go up and we can take it. His report was totally different. In essence, here's what Caleb said. Yes, we are grasshoppers in their sights. We are grasshoppers in our own sights, but we're grasshoppers for the Lord, and we can take them. No problem. Grasshoppers for Jesus. We are grasshoppers reporting for duty. I think we ought to get a t-shirt. <laughs> Next time we're ordering t-shirts for VBS, we get this, these shirts with grasshoppers on them and says we're grasshoppers for Jesus. How about that? Anybody want to order right now? I got three. Okay. We'll order those after church. But, but that's exactly what Caleb is saying. Yes, we're, we're, we're just grasshoppers, but we're the Lord's grasshoppers, and we have the majority here. But nobody listened to him. And we find in chapter 14 that the people rebel. 
They weep and they whine and they rebel. And they grumble in verse 2 against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword and our little ones? And it would be better to return to Egypt. And so they said to one another, verse 4, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Let's go back. It's a failed experience. We're not going to do it. We're going to go back. Well, the Lord is, of course, not pleased. Verses 5 to 9, we find Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua pleading with the people not to do this, but to no avail. They want to go back. They rebelled, verse 9, because they're afraid. Verse 10, but all the congregation said, stone them with stones. Let's kill those guys. Then the Lord's glory appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. The Lord comes again as he had done before in the front of the people. And the Lord is ready by verse 11 and 12 to kill them all and start over. But uh, after Moses pleads for them, the Lord decides to let, to keep them alive, but to have them wander in the wilderness for the next 38 years. On their pathway to the land flowing with milk and honey, they don't make it. And they end up all dying in the wilderness. What should have been a land of blessing became their cemetery. And there they were buried and there they died. But they do a strange thing in verse 39. It's the strangest things. He says, when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And in the morning, however, they rose up early, went out to the ridge of the hill country, saying, here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place where the Lord has promised. We're going to do it anyway. We're going to repent. We're going to change our minds. We're going to go up to the land anyway. And we find out that didn't work well. Moses said, don't go up. The Lord's not with you. And because the Lord was not with them, they failed and they were, many of them were killed. I received an email some years ago saying it was a recall notice. And so I wanted to read what it was being recalled. And here's what it said. The maker of all human beings, God, is recalling all units manufactured regardless of make or year, due to a serious defect in the primary and central component of the heart. This is due to a malfunction in the original prototype units, code name Adam and Eve, resulting in the reproduction of the same defect in all subsequent units. This defect has been technically termed subsequential internal non-morality, or more commonly S-I-N, as is primarily expressed. Some of the symptoms include these. Loss of direction. Foul vocal emissions. Amnesia of origin. Lack of peace and joy. Selfish or violent behavior. Depression or confusion in the mental com uh, component. Fearfulness, idolatry, and rebellion. The manufacturer, who is neither liable nor at fault for this defect, is providing factory authorized repair and service free of charge to correct this defect. The repair technician, Jesus, has been graciously offered to bear the entire burden of the staggering costs of these repairs. There is no additional fee acquired, required. Wow. What a messed up, defective people we are. And only the Lord Jesus Christ can fix us. 
We're not going to have time to look at the final complaint in chapter 16. It's a very ugly one as well with Korah. But I want to rush off to this kind of thoughts. What in the world is wrong with these people? Right? What, they, they, they've had it all. They've been blessed beyond all blessings. They have the presence of God they can see every day in the form of a cloud. What is wrong with these people? Well, what is wrong with these people is they're dissatisfied with what God wants to do in their lives. The root of sin has been deeply embedded and they don't want to move forward. I, I want to finish this up with two marvelous quotes. Don't quit before I do. All right? A.W. Tozer said this. In nature, everything moves in the direction of its hungers. In the spiritual world, it's not otherwise. We gravitate toward our inward longing. That which we long for, we gravitate toward. That which attracts us is that which we chase after. Now here's one more thing. Many of you have heard of George Mueller, a man of God in the 1800s is still... Uh, speaks to us today. George Mueller became a great man of God, but he came, became a great man of God for a particular reason. As his ministries began to enlarge and spread, he was very busy. And he found himself going out to serve and minister, not prepared spiritually to do so. You ever, ever go to work like that? You ever get up in the morning and you go out and do your thing and your heart is not ready before the Lord? And Mueller was recognizing that in himself. And he recognized this was a defect. This is a problem. And so he decided to do something. And here's what, he, here's what he says, and I'll tell you what he did. He said this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. That's spoken to me hundreds of times. Here's what he did. He's English. So every morning he'd get up and he'd have a fire in his fireplace. It's always chilly over there. He had a fire in his fireplace. He had a, a cup of tea. It's England. Got a cup of tea. And he sat before his fireplace with his tea and his Bible opened and speaking to God. And he would not leave that room until his soul was happy with Christ. That is spoken to me hundreds and hundreds of times. As I get up and rush off to my ministries and my service for Christ, that my soul is not caught up. My soul is not happy in Christ. These people continue down the road of rebellion because their souls were not happy with the Lord. May that not be true of us, folks. Take the time, very practically speaking, what I just gave you. Take the time every morning before you move off to your world to get your soul happy with the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll change your world. Father, we thank you for Yourself, we look at the people here. You said you wrote these things down for our instruction. I'm so glad you did, even though it's ugly stuff here, Lord, sometimes. But thank you, Father, that you forgive us. Thank you that you saved us. Thank you that your Son came for us. Lord, may we find our souls happy in the Lord Jesus, moment by moment, day by day. And I pray we're that way this morning as we close out our service. In Jesus' holy name, amen.